0: Welcome to Chaplain Stories, sacred stories from the front lines of ministry. My name is Chaplain Caleb McCary, and we are going to be talking to chaplains about their stories, living out their calling and ministering to military personnel. I'm so glad to have you joining us as we talk about faith, life, and ministry with our guests. Welcome to Chaplain Stories, I am Chaplain McCary and I have a very special guest with us here today, Chaplain Colonel Timothy Mallard. I met Chaplain Mallard at a training in San Antonio uh, for Moral Injury, it's a training for uh, chaplains and unit ministry teams and uh, we actually had chaplains uh, and enlisted folks from the Army, from the Air Force and from the Navy. Uh, all attending this training and Chaplain Mallard was one of the trainers the subject matter experts who came in and he was actually talking about uh, spiritual injury and he also told us some of his story uh, throughout his presentation and as he told his story uh, particularly about his ministry in and around September 11th and the attack on the Pentagon I thought man I have got to see if he would be willing to sit down and record an episode of the podcast. Well, as it happened, uh, he and I are both stationed in the Washington, D.C. area right now, and so we got our schedules aligned, and today we were able to sit down uh, and record a Chaplin Stories podcast. Now, Chaplin Mallard has done some writing, so if you'd like to check out some of his writing, you can find it at ProvidenceMag.com. Uh, Just search for Timothy Mallard, and his articles will come up. Uh, He has a Ph.D. um, from the University of Wales, Trinity St. David, in Christian Ethics. So Chaplain Mallard uh, knows what he's talking about. He's very passionate, and he has a deep well of experience to draw from as a chaplain, uh, going all the way back to the Persian Gulf War in the early 90s. So, I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. My name is uh, Timothy S. Mallard and I'm a
1: chaplain and colonel in the United States Army and I'm the Director of Recruiting and Endorser Relations um, in the Office of the Chief of Chaplains as well as facilitating the branch's uh, ethics community of practice.
0: All right, so the the first question I have kind of a follow-on to that. so. Um, some of the folks who listen to our podcast, they're, uh, they're from a civilian standpoint, <laughs> and uh, they might be asking, okay, so what is this endorser thing, and, and why is that important uh, for a chaplain?
1: Well, it's, it's absolutely uh, vital to a chaplain not only to enter the Army, but to stay in the Army, um, and our endorsing agents represent our churches, denominations, faith traditions around the country. And they basically are the credentialing um, arm of those churches, denominations, or faith traditions and certify a religious leader um, for uh, sending to the army as a potential uh, chaplain, whether in the guard, the reserve, or the active component. So um, we have, uh, as of today, 192 endorsing agents around the country. Um, and I manage uh, our relationships for the branch with those endorsing agents um, and help them help answer questions that they might have and maintain relationships with their faith traditions uh, because they are basically our, our, our sending agencies for our chaplains.
0: So essentially without endorsers, we don't have chaplains.
1: That's absolutely correct. Um, the uh, The... The, the role of an endorsing agent is, is critical because in the chaplain corps we sort of um, uh, casually say um, that uh, chaplains um, have um, uh, at least two bosses that they serve, actually three, <laughs> you know, their, uh, their commander uh, or commanding officer to whatever unit they're assigned, their, their technical Supervisor, so their supervisory chaplain, but then also their endorsing agent. Um, they have to, chaplains have to maintain uh, standing with their endorsing agent and their denomination or faith tradition, um, and we work for them as much as we work for our commanders or supervisory chaplains. All right. Well, very good. Now, um, you've been wearing the, the uniform for a little while. Right. Uh, this next week will be 30 years since I took my commission as a, as a chaplain candidate. Oh, wow, thirty years. I'm about
0: sixteen years, but not all as a chaplain. I had some enlisted time in there sure, as well. Sure. Sure. Uh, so, what did you do uh, before coming into the into the chaplain corps?
1: Well, um, I was. Uh, I, I took my commission, and as I said, in, in the fifteenth of May, nineteen eighty-eight, my father uh, was an army chaplain, and he commissioned me, and um, he received my first salute, and that was, that was a, a special memory for me, but um, uh, I was a student in seminary at the time, and uh, while I continued uh, my, my theological studies uh, as a chaplain candidate and then trained, I also pastored a small church in Indiana, um, so I was a church pastor, and, um, and then eventually uh, came on active duty.
0: So, uh, so what happened in your life that that drew you to the chaplaincy? What what was your your calling there? Well, as
1: I said, my father was an Army chaplain uh, and was a career active duty Army chaplain for thirty years. Uh, so I've actually I, I have kind of a unique perspective. I I, I think I've been around the chaplaincy since nineteen sixty nine when he first entered, um, and uh, I, I then. I sort of understand the chaplaincy as uh, as a dependent, you know, the son of a chaplain, uh, and and the pressures on military families uh, in navigating those tensions. But then, as a chaplain candidate, and then as a reserve chaplain, and then as an active duty chaplain. So I've I've fulfilled all those all those roles. Um, but in essence, uh, I I never wanted to be a chaplain. I I I was I was a very deeply committed Christian in my faith, and in fact, my father. Uh, baptized me, um, in an army chapel. Um, but I, I just h- had not sensed a call to the chaplaincy as a, as a young man. In fact, wanted to go to uh, either West Point or the Naval Academy mm. and worked toward that goal all the way through high school. And then, um, uh, but at, at about the age of 17, I, I was very committed to my faith and I really began to, um, I was very involved in Protestant youth at the chapel and some other things, and I really began to to wrestle with the issue of whether I personally could um, conduct uh, com- combatant uh, warfare against another person. Hmm. Um, and that was not really something that I had ever wrestled with, but it became a, a real sort of spiritual tension in my life for, from about the age of 17 onward. And yet, I continued my application to the service academies, but came to the point in February of my senior year, where I was actually before my congressman's committee, um, and my father was sitting outside uh, the uh, the office, uh, uh, waiting for me, and and they offered me the uh, the congressman's, uh, not the representative's nomination, uh, to West Point or Navy, and. I literally heard a voice tell me, this is not what I want you to do. Oh, wow. And it was so startling uh, that I stopped for a minute and looked around because I, I I assumed that other people would have heard it and they didn't. And then the voice spoke to me again. Yeah. And it was so compelling that I had to turn it down on the spot. And, um, of course, they were very, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, upset, but uh, you know, asked me to consider if well, you know, maybe you should go to uh, the the preparatory school and, I, and I just said no. This is this is not the direction that I'm supposed to go. I I don't know what's happening, but wow. so I walked out and uh, and again this is February of my senior year of high school. Yeah, and my father asked how it went. I I told him what happened. And he was just very nonplussed about it. And he said okay. He said if that's not what the Lord wants you to do, then then We'll find that route that is. Um, we ended up taking a, a trip to my parents' alma mater at Stetson University. And uh, um, the next weekend I was accepted on site, and um, that's where I ended up going to school, met my wife. Um, and in in January of my freshman year of college, so really the next year, um, I was back at home on winter break, and... Um, and I, as a matter of fact, I remember it was January first, nineteen eighty-four, and uh, we were in a Protestant worship service um, at at Fort McPherson uh, Post Chapel in Georgia, and there in Atlanta. And uh, and I had an even more dramatic experience in which um, I literally was um, assumed into heaven, uh, as 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 Paul says, you know the. He says he knows a man who was assumed into the seventh heaven, and, and, and that's the experience that I had, um, and, and, and yet I was before the throne of God, and, and, and though in my mind's eye I could see everything that was happening, I could see myself naked and crouching before the throne of God, Wow! and, uh, and a voice told me, if you look on God, you will die. Um, and, and at that point though, in my mind's eye, um, God raises his right hand and pointed at me and said, you are to preach my gospel. You are to preach my gospel. And, um, and that was my call experience. And that came, that, that ended... And as I came back to earthly reality, the whole worship service had stopped. My parents were up in the choir. They were wondering what was going on with me. I had moved from the pew there in the chapel to the center aisle and was just weeping uncontrollably. Um, my my brother, uh, God bless him, thought, thought you know, I was upset at him or, you know, <laughs> that there was some sort of <laughs> tension that, that we had in our relationship. So he, he kind of moved me out. And, and again, I, of the of the service and my parents asked me afterwards what happened. And I told told them and again, my both of them, including my dad, were just like, okay, well, then the Lord's called you to the ministry. Hmm. And uh, then later still, um, that spring, as I had met my wife, we were on our first date and uh, literally this is our first date and we are taking a walk and my wife had no experience with the military none whatsoever and uh, she she stopped and she held my arm and she said "I, I don't know what's happening here but I am supposed to tell you you cannot take another step until you know that you are supposed to be an army chaplain and I said okay and I had not talked to her about you know, my struggles with this or, you know, um, or, or my sense of calling. And she said, do you understand that you, you, you have, you cannot go another step until you understand that. I said, okay, I understand that. And, uh, she said, okay, I'm not even really sure what that is, but (laughs) okay. Um, so in that sense, those were all at formative ages, you know, those, those three events between the ages of 17 and 19. Wow. My, my calling really became a, a real, uh, n- number one, obviously, spiritually very profound. But but number two, one which um, in in which both my wife and I in our married relationship um, were both grounded in that sense of calling and remain so today. So wow. after that, I continued uh, going through college and but immediately went to seminary um, and uh, and applied for entrance into the chaplain candidate program. Wow. So. You know,
0: it's interesting. I, I, I don't know um, how many uh, other chaplains you, you've talked to about their stories, probably a fair number over the years. Um, and I know at least in a number who I have talked to, a common thread is my wife or maybe fiancé, girlfriend at the time who became wife said, yeah, you know. Uh, I think you need to be a chaplain. And I have a similar story Mm -hmm. uh, as
1: well. I've seen that same trend in in many of our uh, um, uh, chaplains who come from traditions where they're allowed to be married, yes. Uh, Mm. Or if if they come from traditions where that's not the case, such as perhaps the Roman Catholic priesthood or something like that, it's still often a very, very close family member. Um, Or one of our... Uh, ranks a religious leader um, or chaplain who becomes that vessel through which God speaks to another to to initiate their calling to the chaplaincy yeah. So yeah that's incredible
0: well sir I'd like to transition here uh, to another part of the podcast and I'd like to hear some of your stories um, and one of the reasons why I really wanted to sit down with you and why I was so glad when I found out we were both in the D.C. area, mm-hmm. um, we met in San Antonio right. uh, at, a, at a moral injury course, and you were telling us a little bit about your story and uh, specifically some of your experiences uh, around 9-11. Right. Um, I would like to, to hear some of that, because I, I think that's a very powerful story that you have. Okay.
1: Um, well, I was uh, assigned at the time as an intern uh, to the Office of the Chief of Chaplains, and uh, so I was I was a captain uh, at that time. And um, we had been uh, traveling the week before, and... and uh, um, I, I did a lot of TDYs and traveling around the Army uh, in that capacity. And um, I, it, you know, people wouldn't think about it today in this age of digital communication, but we had been conducting some on site interviews with chaplains, I think, down at Fort Hood. And we had videotaped them. So we had them on VCR tapes. We had to take the VCR tapes over to um, the United States Army Visual Information Center there in the Pentagon. To get processed. Yeah, yeah. Um, We wouldn't have to do that today. But at any rate, um, uh, I had that on my to-do list for the next day. And I also was uh, the speechwriter for the chief. And he had a – I needed to go by the front office and pick up some details on um, uh, an event he had coming up. And um, so the night before uh, September 11th, uh, uh, we were – home and in bed and, and uh my son woke up and was in a tremendous amount of pain as you know kids will get and uh you know he was holding his ear and, and i said okay well so i got up and loaded him in the car took him to the emergency room and of course he was diagnosed with an ear infection and, mm. um, we we uh we went on back home and I uh, got him settled down in bed. And I was thinking, okay, well, I can get a couple hours of, you know, rack and then get up and, you know, make it in. And right as I thought that, my daughter sat up in bed and just said, Daddy, I'm sick and got sick everywhere. Mm. And So I went in and cleaned that up and he got her settled down. And and, uh, and my wife said, well, you know, I stayed home with Caroline last week while you were at TDY, so it's your turn tomorrow. I said, okay. So I got up early the next morning and just called my boss and left a message that I wouldn't be in that day. Kids were sick. And um and then of course the you know the attacks occurred that day. Um, and it, it it was really um it was really quite uh, uh well it, it was um it was an amazing experience to have a sense that a war zone had come to you know suburban Washington DC suburban New York or urban yeah. Washington yeah. DC and urban New York um, and um, that you know we we were literally trying to deal with a direct attack um, it, it was surreal and we spent the next I, I you know I, I mentioned the my my uh, um my plan to go over to USC I was supposed to be on that wedge of the building that morning that's you know where the office of the chief was located at that time the front mm. office and uh that wedge had just been uh renovated and um you know but by God's design I suppose with my sick children I, I wasn't there yeah yeah uh we we spent the next um Two and a half weeks working at the attack site, uh, and it—it it was again something that I. There, there simply was nothing in my theological education. There was nothing in my army training that had prepared me for, for the scope of that experience. Um, you, you have to understand. There was not only military out there. There was there there was, there was FBI. There was Alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. There were Secret Service. There, there was Defense Protective Service. There, there, there was, you know, fire and rescue. There was everybody out there. Um, and the, unfortunately, the, the focus initially was on uh, stabilizing the building. Mm-hmm. Um, if if the plane had hit any other wedge of the building, the devastation would have been far more immense. But it had just hit. It hit the wedge that had just been um, reopened, that had been reinforced, renovated, and that the, the the stronger walls, things like that, arrested the 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 uh, the movement of the plane. Um, but we still had the the crews had to stabilize the building, and then we were trying to get in. They were trying to get in. Um, great first responders to to do search and rescue uh, what there there were a lot of people missing um, lots of concerned family members hmm. um, gathering out on the highway uh, they quickly set up a five about a five acre perimeter with a fence line up up out there and um, and then sadly obviously we we moved from a search and a rescue to a search and recovery mission and um, and, and that's really where you know, I, as a, as a chaplain, we were just working day in and day out out there, uh, really did uh, the bulk of my work in, in that time. And then with families later as we started doing funerals. Um, but um, one, one of the, the privileges that I had was there was one of the F- FEMA search and rescue teams from uh, the great state of Tennessee, Tennessee Task Force One, um, from down in uh, Shelby County, Memphis uh, area, um, they they uh, they had deployed up there, and they, these are teams with you know um, you know docs, nurses, psychiatrists, uh, structural engineers, dog handlers. Or there are all kinds of folks mm-hmm. trained to go in and work disaster scenes, and uh, and and they had asked you know, hey, could we have a chaplain? <laughs> so um, the senior chaplain there said. You have any ties to Tennessee? I said, Well, yeah, my in laws lived here. Okay, well you could yeah. be their chaplain. Okay. So I did and um there there was a moment where the building had finally stabilized and we were gonna start really going in to recover remains and and um and uh I I got in early one morning and really hadn't processed everything that was happening to me, but um one of the guys ran into the tent. We had a chaplain's tent right there at the, the front entrance of the site and said, uh, he just ran in and said, chaplain, we need you right now. You know, And then he turned around and ran off. I thought, OK. I knew he was from the team, so I ran down there to the site. And uh, I guess there was probably 80 or so of the, the team members that were gathered around. They had a semi with their equipment and things like that. And they were all there, and I thought, I, I didn't know if somebody had died or, uh um, and it wasn't that they, they simply said, we, we have got to have a word from the Lord before we go in today. We will not go back in the building until we mm-hmm. hear from him. And they were looking at me and I thought, holy cow, uh, <laughs> what do I do? You know, um, well, I had been through some training the year before in Europe on, uh, critical incident stress debriefing. And I had this card, this plastic laminated card that they had given out at this training and I had stuck it in my wallet and I, I just reached for that card. Mm. (laughs) I, I was so nervous, you know, you, you, you sort of lose focus on your own training and things like that. And I, I walked through the, the, the steps of a CISD and some people were talking, but you know, and sharing some, but I, you just get the sense sometimes that you're not connecting. Mm-hmm. You know that there's, you're, there's somehow there's something else that needs yeah. to come out. And uh, I said, I asked them, I said, you know, as as I finished that portion, I said, you know, would you all like me to read a word of uh, scripture and pray? And they said, yes, that's what we need. And I said, mm-hmm. okay. So I had my uh, my pocket Psalms, New Testament, and Proverbs there with me. And I pulled that out, and I read the the twenty third psalm, and the and the sun was coming up over the the other edge of the building, and and uh, and, and right as I as I got to the, I, I guess I just had never really seen in that passage of scripture the role of of movement or or journey, how that is a theme. There, there's this physical journey that, that David is, as, as the sheep really is taking, (laughs) you know, um, and as I got to that point in the Psalm where he says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I, I looked to my right and, and I looked at the gaping hole in the building and the, up into the fuselage and, and, um, and I really just, Stumbled on those words and choked and mm. teared at myself, mm. and 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 I stopped mid psalm. But then I thought, no, that's not the end. That's not the end of the of the passage. It's not the end of the journey. And I turned back to the team and I said, "I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff they comfort me." and 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 I went on, and then I gathered everybody in, and we we just linked arms and and prayed, and uh, and I remember one of the guys said, "Okay, chaps, that's what we needed, and uh, we're ready to go." And they they went in that day, and and we really started taking, they really started taking the bodies out. Um. I went back to the tent. Of course, you know they had they had a lot of very technically precise jobs to do. I went back to the chaplain's tent, though, and and was just, I think, the immensity of the suffering uh, overwhelmed me at that point. And I just went into a dark corner of the tent and fell down and just completely uh, was consumed in that sense of darkness. And um, there, there happened to be another Coast Guard chaplain there who was, just coming in for to start working the day and and saw me and uh, and came over and, and and just really comforted me and encouraged me and gave me a word of uh, prayer as well and and that allowed me then to go back out and continue working that day which was very hard because from that day on we started working the body teams and chaplains and docs would go in on each of the the teams when they found a, a, a body or and, and we would, you know, the doctor would certify that, yes, this person had died and the chaplain would pray for them, but you had to actually look at the, the remains of those mm. killed in that kind of mm. attack. And it's those images that, that just, you know, seared themselves into my memory and, and I still wrestle with today. But that single day was probably the, the toughest day I, that I've had in the chaplaincy. Um, the, the sense of need from the people that you're serving. The sense of um, over, overwhelming, almost consuming uh, uh, sorrow that y- that you feel, um, um, and yet then the need to go back out and continue to honor the dead and, and to 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 repatriate them from an attack scene, you know, mm. um, that that requirement just doesn't stop, you know. That that was a uh, that was a hard day.
0: So what helped you um, be able to do that day after day? And then also, um, you know, you mentioned your family earlier. You're walking through that not just as an individual, but right. you're walking through it uh, with your family as well. So so what helped you uh, be able to work through that
1: um, as a husband and a father mm-hmm. uh, with your family? Well, I wish I could say that... that um you know, I I did absolutely everything perfectly, uh, and and we were all, you know, um, we're all okay. But but I've said before, and I'll say it again. I I made a a grievous error in in not allowing myself time to attend to that to my own woundedness and how much that was impacting me. I in fact I I went straight back to work and as soon as we finished um, the funerals, the chief and I started traveling a lot, and we, I think we were on the road for about eight and a half months out of the next year. Mm, wow. um, the, um it, it was very important for the Corps to see the chief, and when I, the chaplain corps, to see our chief of chaplains. They, they knew that we were all assigned to the Pentagon. We, we didn't lose any chaplains or chaplain assistants in the, in the attack some of us were not accounted for at least initially but uh but it was still very important as we were entering a war particularly Mm -hmm. for the for the chaplain corps to see their chief and so we were on the road a lot i i should have um been more intentional in attending to again how much that impacted me and my own woundedness um resulting from that day um Eventually, I, I, the chief and I went to Afghanistan. Um, I, I deployed to Iraq uh, my first time, um, in which I had other very, uh, you know, there there we had some some significant aspects of combat trauma in, our, in my first tour in Iraq. I deployed later in my second tour, but um, uh, it wasn't really until after my first tour, when we were at Fort Leavenworth, I had deployed to Iraq and come back and then went to Leavenworth to, uh, to Command and General Staff College. And, and it was my wife and, and my kids who who became almost like, I, I've used this image, or this analogy before, they almost became like a mirror to me. and, mm-hmm. and and they were the ones who reflected back to me my own woundedness, and said, "You know, you are. You're experiencing things. Your 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 mood has changed. Um, you're having, you know, violent nightmares at night. You know that kind of thing." And um, so I went to a very uh, dear. Uh, uh, psychotherapist who happened to have been one of my former parishioners in Heidelberg, uh, an army psychotherapist. And, and he was very, very helpful in, in helping me start to deal with that. But I still don't think that I really attended in depth to my own woundedness. Um, and, um, it wasn't really until my, after my second tour in Iraq from 2010 to 2011 that, in, in which I was physically injured, you know, from a rocket attack, and that produced all kinds of effects on, on, on my head, and you know, f- so you know, these lasting physical problems. That I also began to see that I, there were, there were deeper emotional, uh, I so I had mental, cognitive repercussions from the rocket, but I, I had r- really lasting emotional and spiritual injury, um, that that went back. Uh, much, much further than I, th- I think I, I understood. And it was, again, um, a very uh, a faith-filled uh, uh, therapist who helped me connect all of my accumulated woundedness back to that original event at the Pentagon hmm. um, and to see, to see my woundedness in a sort of cumulative effect now, now, all that said, um, y- you know, you asked about my family. All throughout that time, one of the things that we did as a family was, um, uh, my woundedness became their woundedness, and thus my he- healing became their healing, and and so our experience of working, uh, you know in and through and from 9-11 on and are, has really been a family project. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I never tried, the one thing I did do right was I never tried to do that to attempt that healing in isolation, you know. Um, and so there's a real sense now in which anything that I share or experience about uh, 9-11 and onward, Afghanistan, Iraq, and other uh, deployments it is really a testimony to our our, our family resilience mm-hmm. um but it has not been without cost for uh enduring costs for for me for my wife for my children for my father and mother before they died um yeah yeah so no um
0: so you had 9-11 what mm-hmm. was the the time frame of your other deployments
1: so the chief and I went to Afghanistan in uh, the winter of 2001, right after we had first gone in. And then uh, I deployed to Iraq first time in 2003 um, and then deployed back to Iraq in 2010, 2011. Um, and in between there, you know, we were doing, I was doing some training deployments to some other places. So, mm. Yeah, so you were, you
0: experienced... Um nine eleven the the very early
1: years in Afghanistan mm-hmm. and the very early years in and, Iraq and before that I had deployed uh, as a battalion chaplain to to the um, end of desert storm in nineteen ninety one as well so oh wow um, yeah that was that was as a reservist, but I you know um, yeah. that was yeah well, that was also a deployment as well
0: well, you have mentioned um, Throughout telling your story, you have used the word uh, "wounded" or, mm-hmm. or "or injured" to right. de- to describe uh, the way you were feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that you've subsequently gone on to to research and to study is mm-hmm. uh, spiritual moral injury. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and sure. uh, and what that comes from
1: and Why that's important? Certainly. Um, Writing and study for me became, a, I think, a real mechanism for uh, healing. And uh, so in the wake of uh, 9-11 and in in between those subsequent deployments, I ended up... um, Going to CGSC, like I said, I, I, I completed the War College, graduated from there, but I also completed my Ph.D. in, in Theological Ethics, and I was really interested in um, the experience of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in World War II, particularly in his role as a theological leader. Um, you know, many people focus on Bonhoeffer's theology or his ecclesiology, which are all very appropriate, or his, pub, his, his role in leading the Confessing Church, which is very appropriate. But, but I was interested in, in the sort of toll on Bonhoeffer as a leader, and I ended up writing about that in my War College thesis and some other things. So at any rate, um, I, I felt very much like I was uh, in, in a similar circumstance, mm-hmm. that I was called to this project. You know, God had understood that this would always be a part of my call You know, back when I was that, that freshman in college, even if I couldn't see that then. And um, and and that's often, I think, the, the one of the burdens of call for for religious leaders is is dealing with the ever unfolding implications of our calling on us, on our families, on on our communities. Anyway, um, after I came back from my second tour in Iraq, and I had, as I said, been been injured in this under this this rocket, I, I really was experiencing a lot of physical symptoms. Uh, massive, massive headaches, dizziness, disorientation, memory loss—the whole nine yards. Didn't understand at the time that I, that I had uh, TBI that was subsequently diagnosed. Um, but I was working with a, a, again. I was trying to talk with, and by this time I was trying to work with a, uh, a therapist initially who had no faith orientation and and you know she she was she was very um, upfront about that and uh, and and we gamely went through the process but I I I just felt after about six months or so of that I remember walking across the the uh, campus at uh, the Army War College I just stopped and I just thought there there's something that we're not reaching here and it's that the root of my problem is not um, a moral problem. And she, she was the one who had first introduced me to the term moral injury. Mm-hmm. It's a spiritual problem that, that I'm, I'm wounded in my soul. Um, and that's when I really began to look at, well, what is this term moral injury? What, how is it defined? How is it, how is it, how is the term used? And, and I really began to see, uh, what I still contend are, um, significant, um, frankly deficiencies in, in in the way the definition is framed and often in the way it's it's used it's built on a theological verb of transgression but there's no theological context to it that implies perhaps a sense of moral agency on the part of the warrior when in my case I, I did you know I did nothing to make that rocket blow up over me it just right. did you right. know um, or I did nothing to cause 9/11 I, but I was deeply impacted by it I mean so you Get the idea um, that it's it's very indiscriminately used and applied um, uh, these these days, um, and and some other distinctions. I, I think the the main disagreement that I had was with it. Um, there was this unwillingness in the definition because it's it's it, it arises from principally the clinical community in in most healthcare settings there's this unwillingness to address what's actually wounded, mm. right? So in moral injury, one of the questions I always asked as I read about that definition, well, what's wounded? Well, um, in, in my pastoral role as a chaplain, I was able to say, well, it's the soul. The, I mean, the body can be wounded, but the soul can be wounded. Right. And that's right. where, I, where I began to develop the idea uh, of delineating moral injury from what I term spiritual injury. And spiritual injury begins with the woundedness of the warrior and his or her experience. and it, it. But it's concentric in that it moves out since the warrior never serves in a vacuum. That woundedness moves out outward from the warrior to his or her unit and then to the family, then, then to the community, then to the nation, and then even to the world. Um, and ultimately, in an existential sense, in the warrior's relationship to God, Um and uh, I, I have wanted to make, in delineating, it's not that there's not moral injury, the, the way that, that, that I, I have seen and worked with warriors who have experienced that, um, the, the way the definition is generally used, albeit imprecisely often. Um, I've just wanted to create an understanding that there's um, a different... Um, and similar but distinct type of injury, understanding of injury, and, and categorize that as, as spiritual injury. Um, and that it's that injury that I think is, is particularly for warriors and families, because of, again, the concentric nature of it, is, as I term it, so pervasive and so persistent. I mean, it, often as I deal with warriors, I mean, much like, like me, it becomes a that type of injury becomes a lifelong project, long mm. after the physical injuries have healed, yeah. right? Or long after even the mental injuries that, you know, there was a point at which my own mind recovered, functioning. Uh, the headaches went away, the dizziness went away, so on and so forth. But I'm still working with the after effects of spiritual injury, mm-hmm. um, and and my family is, and I presume then, since I and my family are. Our community is, <laughs> right. You, know, you know, right. so you get the idea. Um, yeah.
0: So, a um, couple of questions that sure. that come to mind with that, um, and I like this uh, idea of a spiritual injury I, as a as a person of faith that that mm-hmm. resonates with me. Um, what what have you found with with the people who will say, well, I don't I don't really have uh, a faith background, or I'm not particularly religious. Um, have you found that this uh, still resonates with them?
1: I I have. Um, in in fact, I think because the the term moral injury, as it's um, generally understood and applied uh, these days, it's an abstraction, right? And 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 warriors are um, are generally you know people who like to deal with concrete, you know, uh, tangible uh, concepts um, that resonate with themselves Mm -hmm. and their own experience. Um, So as I've used, um, and and my my description, uh, that's the correct word of moral injury, it is descriptive, it's not prescriptive. Right, Right, right. So I'm simply trying to describe what I'm seeing Admittedly, first within myself, but then in others. And as I've used that with with warriors, whether they have a faith background or not, they say often, "Yes, that's what I'm struggling with." Now, now I've I've delineated twelve markers, some or all of which may be present in in spiritual injury. Um, and many of the of those warriors who don't have a faith background at all might say, "Well." You know, I don't understand that one or it doesn't, you know, uh, ring true to me, but then there are some that, that really always ring true. Yeah. Deep questions about, uh, uh justice or, or injustice, um, questions about, uh, uh, identity, meaning and purpose, you know, ha- uh, who, who am I, um, uh, uh, what what does this experience mean for me and and then what purpose does this play in my life? whether I frame that in relation in, in relative to a relationship with God or the divine, you know most warriors are, are still wrestling with with those kinds of issues. so um, and, and then if they want to frame those uh, and do frame those relative to that relationship with God, the definition as I have, uh, described it, create space for them to do that. If they don't, um, they may locate that more within themselves, and that's fine too. Um, so as I've dealt with warriors, I try to let their needs um, drive my response to them and work with them in, in working through spiritual injury. And I, I think one of the things that has complicated this in, in, the, in the modern profession of arms is that, that our warriors come from a society in which they have little to no thought constructs or language um, from traditional categories of philosophy, theology, right? So, th- so, so when I talk to them about being a person, both body and soul, mm-hmm. many of them have never even... Thought of themselves that way, they think of themselves only in the physiological sense. Right. Well, right. I, I'm I'm a biological being. The, the idea that they might have a soul, <laughs> that is separate from the body and may, you know, uh, outlive the body. Right. The, those kinds of initial basic constructs uh, or concepts, um, I, I may have to help them understand that. But when I do, even if I don't frame that or we don't frame that relative to a relationship to God or the divine they seem to understand that and then when we talk about that woundedness of the soul they seem to understand that
0: it's like the the piece of the puzzle that's missing
1: or you know, right. every other options have
0: been tried other things have been addressed other you know physical woundedness or, or mental woundedness has been addressed but there's still something that doesn't exactly. feel right
1: exactly exactly
0: yeah. exactly well i, I one more follow-up question sure. um, related to that, um, and uh, as I was thinking through this, so I, I'm, I'm doing CPE over at, at Walter mm-hmm. Reed, and, and <coughs> one of the things that we regularly discuss over there in our visits with patients, uh, you know, is the is the question of uh, of theodicy. You know, why right. does a good God uh, allow these things to happen? Mm-hmm. And it's a regular question that, that chaplains course. encounter, and, and clergy, caregivers, and... Um, have you found that this idea of
1: spiritual injury uh, helps with the theodicy question? I, I have quite a bit. And in fact, <clears throat> uh, to the point that many of the observations that, that, uh, that the warriors and families with whom I've worked in, in, this, in this vein, because of many of their experiences and dialoguing with me and sharing with me about this, working through their own woundedness, um, I developed a further concept um, that I'm writing about now. I'm so I'm writing a second article on moral injury, delineating moral and spiritual injury, um, and and the concept is redemptive suffering. And um, I, I think one of the main things that uh, wounded warriors, uh, again, uh, are, are wrestling with, and their families are wrestling with, is um, Again, when, they, when you, you bring up the term theodicy, the, the problem of evil and, and, a, and a good God, but I think what they're really wrestling with at the individual level is, what does this suffering mean for me? You know, right. right, right. So is there, and again, you, you might <clears throat> categorize that as located within identity, meaning, and purpose, you know, why is there suffering in my life, right? And what am I to do with this suffering? Um, it's here, it's present, it won't go away. Uh, what do I do with this? Well, the idea that suffering can in fact be redemptive, that um, that God can use that in our lives um, <clears throat> to in fact um, help us grow mm-hmm. that is completely uh, countercultural right you, you know our our, and, and, but that's an insight, I think, that theology has to be able to offer to warriors and, and their families. Um, and when I share that with, with warriors and families, that seems to resonate. It, because it, it gives space and permission for the idea that this suffering is not going to go anywhere in your life. Mm-hmm. It will remain. This will become a part of your identity, but it doesn't have to dominate your identity um, and in fact, it can be redeemed for life-giving purposes for you and for others. It doesn't, it doesn't mitigate the original effects of the, of the combat trauma. Um, people may have died in, in traumatic events and, and experiences in combat. But again, it gives space or permission uh, in the warrior's life that that experience doesn't have to be paradigmatic. It becomes a part of who they are but doesn't dominate who they are, and they can actually grow from that. And the two things, you know, again, for, for people of faith particularly um, that I try to, to point people to is that suffering in classical Christian theology always, always had at least two purposes throughout the history of, of, the, of the Christian faith, and I think also through through at least Judaism. I can't say that I'm I'm not an expert in Islam, so I can't I can't speak to that. But uh, but I know at least in Judaism and Christianity, suffering has at least two purposes. Number one, um, to conform us more to the image of God, mm-hmm. right? And number two, to prepare us for eternal life, in in and to to see beyond uh, human life as the totality of existence. Uh, that that even this is preparatory to us. Living in eternity, hmm. Th- those are powerful antidotes to suffering, for for many people. I again, I work with now. So,
0: it's interesting because that's, um, you know, you you look historically, and uh, it, it's it seems very much at odds with um, the cultural norm. Just that suffering right. is something to be. You, it it really has no purpose. You want to get through it and on and over with it as soon as possible. Um, and there's not really a framework there uh, for that, how to deal with suffering. Whereas uh, historically, maybe where suffering was just more part of life, and not as foreign of a concept as we wrongly make it out to be. Uh, right. That that they found that.
1: Uh, that framework for dealing with it in their faith. There, there's two things that I think um, uh, bear on that. No, number one, uh, the, the cultural message that suffering is somehow to simply to be gotten past, as you, as you pointed out, and moved on. And you, the, the warrior and his or her family who are trapped in deep-seated moral and or spiritual injury simply stand up at some point and say, you know i can't do that that that's a lie right. you know i i i can't just you know push that to the side and and keep moving on mm-hmm. you know i th- that this experience won't let me do that the other thing that i think has been very very uh, uh valuable ha- for for me has been in talking with this same idea or experience with people certainly outside of what we might call you know um, uh, you know, it used to be called the first world. Uh, I think that's a pejorative term, um, uh, the, the developed countries of the West. Mm-hmm. Because the, the reality is that for most people, 90% of the peoples around the world, um, not in the United States, Great Britain, Canada, Western Europe, things like right, that, right. suffering is an endemic part of life. Mm-hmm. I, they, they have no problem you know, integrating it into their personhood and into their family systems, into their communities. It's we who have the problem. Right. You know? So in, in a very real way, um, uh, spiritual injury and moral injury can remind us of what it means to be human mm-hmm. um, and remind us of the role that God seeks to play in helping even that suffering to be redemptive yeah. and, and not the final arbiter of our destinies.
0: Yeah, it's it's very interesting. I, I've been reading a, a book by Stanley Hauerwas, mm-hmm. uh, God, Medicine, and Suffering, or I can't remember the exact title, but very much echoes a lot of those mm-hmm. themes um, in the idea of uh, it's a very modern idea the way we approach suffering right now. Yes. And there's we have generations of of writing and people and stories to draw on where right. we have seen. Uh, in cultures much more attuned to mm-hmm. suffering, uh, that can help us with our own. Right. Um, well, I've just got a few wrap-up questions here for you. you you've been a chaplain for a long time, worn mm-hmm. the uniform for a long time. Mm-hmm. You've seen a lot of chaplains come and go, mm-hmm. and there's always new chaplains coming in. What advice would you give uh, <laughs> give to the new chaplains or the or the the junior chaplain sitting across the table from you? <laughs> <laughs> um.
1: Well, um, a, a couple of things I, I would say. Uh, in in number one, in my role now as as the director of recruiting for the branch, I, I deal also a lot with uh, educations of, or um, institutions of theological education, seminaries, divinity schools, things like that, and um, and I know what it means to be a young theological student who's felt called to be the to the chaplaincy and. And you want to, you know, race through your education, and you want to, you want to get on to duty because you you you're, you're passionate about this. I understand. Well, I was that. right there. So. Yeah. <laughs> the one piece of advice I would give, though, is num- number one: don't ignore the criticality, the absolute criticality of congregational service mm. and leadership, because the the thing that working in or leading a congregation as a body of faith requires um, of you is to take what you've learned in seminary or divinity school and to really put that in practice in leading people as the people of God and yeah. that yeah once you get on active duty or once you come into the army there's you can't learn that right right that has to be a part of your your Pastoral identity and spiritual formation prior to that. So don't don't overlook how critical that is. Um, number two, when you do come on active duty, if you sensed that God called you um, or in, into the army in any of the components, active guard or reserve, if you sense that God called you into that, don't ever lose the sense that He is continuing to call you through it. Yes, you know, and yes. and that it's God who is the, as David says in the twenty third Psalm, is the shepherd continuously throughout that journey, not just at the beginning of it. Um, Number three, that if you are married, that that must be, I think for healthy family systems, and I'm talking chaplain family systems, um, that must be a shared sense of calling. Yeah. Um, Where I've seen chaplain families really crumble and fail under the weight of this ministry is where um, there's been a, a bifurcation of um, uh, participating in this ministry. Well, that's, you know, dad's the chaplain. He plays, you know, soldier, puts on the uniform. But we're over here and we live, you know, we, we live a life apart from that. That's mm-hmm. a very, very dangerous um, uh, trend uh, or, or possibility in, in, a, in a family, chaplain yeah. family's life. So make that, number three, I would say, make it a shared sense of calling. And, and then the fourth thing I would say is, and this is very, very passionate about this, is to, to those individual chaplains, number four is keep learning, keep studying, keep reading. Um, there are so many new ideas that that come forth and and that can vastly enrich your ministry um, in the Army chaplaincy. Um, so so always it can sound sort of trite, but but push yourself to be a lifelong learner and student uh, and, and constantly studying, reading, and writing yeah. you know yeah so
0: I'll echo what uh, what you said i t- I kind of joked about it, but uh, I was the young uh, seminarian um, I was in the in the guard for uh, for a good number of years before coming on active duty. I was a chaplain candidate mm-hmm. in the seminary and um in, in the Oklahoma Guard at the time and, and they were getting ready to deploy. I was looking at my last semester of seminary and I called up my endorser, a, a Southern Baptist, called him up and said, "Hey, you know, can I just take summer classes, get this out of the way, uh, and and go with the go with the unit, go with the brigade uh, on this deployment?" Uh, and he absolutely not. You need to go work for 2 years. Um by the time, after you graduate seminary. Right. And I thought, oh, man, what a bunch of party poopers, you know? Yeah. And uh, so I graduated seminary, and I went and was the senior pastor of a small local church Mm -hmm. in in rural Kansas. Mm -hmm. And um, there was nothing that could have prepared me better Mm -hmm. for the chaplaincy Mm -hmm. than... um, the ups and downs, and there were some pretty significant downs, mm-hmm. um, but there was nothing that prepared me better than walking through that. Mm-hmm. Um, for and then when I came and put on the uniform, I felt like I had I had something to draw on.
1: And and that's an, another reason that that's important not not to ignore in your in your development and your professional formation is when you do. Enter the army, whether again guard, reserve, or active component. From day one, your commanders and your people will expect you to be able to lead in that capacity. Right, right. You know, so particularly if you're then assigned as a as a pastor of a chapel congregation, and I've had the honor to to, to pastor some significant ones. Yeah, but you know, we're used to quick transitions in the army, and so there, it's usually hi, welcome. We're glad you're you're our chaplain and pastor now. <laughs> you know, right, uh, right. Get, get busy leading us, I mean, they expect you from day one to be able to do that. That's why I say there's just not time to replicate that formation experience once you're, once you're on duty. Yeah.
0: Well, one final question yes. for you, sir. Um, <clears throat> what do you see as some of the biggest challenges that are facing the chaplain corps in the
1: future? Okay. I think one, and this arises uh, uh, partly from my role now, uh, in the office of the chief of chaplains is um, one of the crises that we're facing in recruiting is that there are pe- people are sort of perhaps aware that there are changing patterns of religious um, uh, practice in America at right. the denominational right. level. What they may not see is how there's also concomitant or derivative effects in changing uh, patterns of religious leader preparation in America, mm-hmm. right? So, so some seminaries or, or divinity schools are struggling to stay open. Mm-hmm. Some are bursting at the seams, but mo- more of their students are, are only studying online, right? Right. But one trend that's fairly common across all denominations, and, and I've talked with, 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 with the endorsing agents about this is... We have more people going to seminaries, divinity schools, things like that, to to, to do basic master's degrees, but they're not. Um, they have no intention of preparing for careers in ordained religious leadership, mm, and yeah. that's what the chaplaincy needs. We right. we need credentialed religious leaders of these faith traditions. Um, that's a very very troubling trend, um, and and so I I would just. I think that one of the things that people of faith in America need to do is to re-elevate the status of the religious leader in a community of faith um, to uh, a position of um, esteem, worth, and value within their faith tradition. Hmm. We, we have got to, in essence, I think in America, recapture a sense of the, of the criticality of the profession of religious leadership, that will attend, that will help, eventually with our own recruiting problems in, in the Army chaplaincy. But I, th- I think will have great effect across many denominations. The, the, so that's a trend, and I, I'm concerned about that. Um, I think another trend that I'm concerned about is um, a, a general lack of uh, appreciation uh, in in our population, our populace, um, perhaps even understanding of how fundamental the free exercise of religious belief is mm, yeah. to a healthy democratic polity. Yeah. Right. So, so let, let's say that, uh, somebody, an individual says, you know what? I, I grew up in church and, uh, now I'm an adult. I'm out from under mom and dad. I, I I'm not going to go to church anymore. Okay, fine. Now, I, I obviously, as a pastoral leader, I would not want them to do that, but, you right. know, it's their right as a citizen. Okay? Right, right. But if you then take that and you make the second order jump to saying and in, in your own sort of mind and thinking, well, because of my experience, then religious belief is not, is not critical to, to the ordering of, of society. Well, that's, that's a whole different... Um, project and and I I think that one of the things that's happening is in in our culture uh, in in America as a nation I am concerned that we are losing an appreciation for again how critical the free exercise of religious belief is to a healthy democratic society and here's why um, it, I, I mentioned Bonhoeffer before mm-hmm. um, theologians in, in crisis like Bonhoeffer. Um, um, Tolkien and, and, and uh, C.S. Lewis out of World War I. Yes, yes. Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, out of, out of uh, uh, his experience in the Soviet Union. Those people remind us that a democratic polity, a healthy one, is only as free as its people are in spirit, mm-hmm. right? So, so the free exercise of religious belief, we talk about that as, as a First Amendment right, but that's sort of an outward expression of an inner freedom of spirit, mm-hmm. and 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 I would say that that Americans I think need to recapture a sense of just how important that is to a healthy uh, democratic society.
0: It's interesting you bring that up because uh, I I was just um, doing some of the writing that that you recommend uh, about. John Leland, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. A, an 18th century Baptist proponent of religious liberty, <laughs> and it's very interesting going back and, and reading uh, some of these, these Christian leaders who were proponents of religious liberty during the formative days of our Republic, mm-hmm. and that they were not just advocating for the religious liberty and the rights of conscience for themselves, um, but for other religious groups as well, right um, specifically mention mentioning uh, Catholics, Jews, Muslims, those were the, the big ones uh, at the time. and that was incredibly countercultural, but right. recognizing that that freedom oh, and even mentioning people of no religious preference as well, right, right. but recognizing that their freedom um, their
1: religious freedom was the other's freedom was the freedom of the country. Exactly, that's precisely right, and that that still remains. I think one of the one of the the points of genius of the, of the American political uh, compact. Um, and by the way, as I deal with uh, religious leaders and and uh, chaplains from nations around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things at which they still look at the United States with great appreciation and affection for, because we offer the space in our, de- in our democracy for people to have that that um, that liberty of soul, really, that liberty yeah. of conscience. Yeah. So.
0: Well, sir, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk My with pleasure. me today. Yeah. Um, it was just, I was so excited when a couple months ago in San Antonio, when uh, you were instructing part of the course there, and you said you were uh, stationed up here in this area, right. and uh, I knew that, man, I got to try and schedule a time where we could sit down and, and chat, and this has been uh, very informative, and I appreciate you uh, sharing your story and, and you know, some very tough memories. Uh, and things that you walked through. I appreciate your openness and willingness to do that. You're welcome, and it's been, been my pleasure. Well, thank you, Chaplain Mallard. Uh, it was a great pleasure to get to sit down with you. Uh, I hope that all of you enjoyed this conversation with Chaplain Mallard. I know it was uh, just a very enjoyable time to get to sit down and to to get to hear more of his, of his story Got to hear a little bit of it at that training in San Antonio, but to get to spend over an hour with him, uh, hearing the ins and outs of it, as well as some more about his work on spiritual and moral injury, I hope that was as beneficial to you as it was for me. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you did, could you share it with your family and friends on your social media venue of choice? You can find the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. And if you'd like to support the continued creation of the podcast, you can do so by searching for Chaplain Stories on Patreon. Thank you very much, and I'll see you next time for another Chaplain Story.